want to welcome you to Grace Baptist. It's Welcome those that are online. It's, it's hard to believe that because of technology this, this morning that people can watch from all over the world. You know, Tabish has been kind of tuning in from Pakistan. And it's just amazing to think that the body of Christ can gather both here physically, but also in another world that wasn't around here 20 years ago. We want you to take your Bibles, turn to Matthew 7. We've been looking at a sermon by Jesus that really cuts to the heart of the matter. So last week, we made this comment that we do a disservice, a grave disservice by not telling each other the truth. And that's hard in our culture because we don't like to offend people. And the truth at times is very offensive. Those that are part of the addiction recovery world know this in a word called intervention. It's where they're on a path and they're destroying themselves. They don't want to look at that. And a group of people who love them dearly gather them in and they do an intervention saying, listen, here is the truth. And so Jesus' sermon in many ways is doing that for us. And we, in many ways, then, do that for the world. We're confronted with the reality of our own self-deception. It's about our hearts. And this morning and next week, we're going to talk about the difference between knowing about and knowing intimately. You're going to have information about someone or something But it's very, very different to know who they are, to know or begin to know their story. Now, last week, we talked about what is false and what is true, mainly false teachers. This week, Jesus turns from false teachers to false hearers. And he talks about two unacceptable alternatives. One has to do with our words. The other has to do with our lives. And again, we go back to the thought that there are two ways that neutrality is impossible, that we have to make a definitive decision. It needs to be made about where we are headed. I'm going to illustrate this with a passage, Romans chapter 12. You can turn there uh, or just follow on the screen for now because I'm going to do this and then another translation. But listen to what Paul says to the church. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's how we think. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I'm going to read this from the message. Do I have a slide on that one, on the message? Yes, I do. Follow with me and and look at this paraphrase and see how it puts this, because I like the way this paraphrase reads. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. 
You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you. Develops warm, well-formed maturity in you. I'm speaking to you out of deep gratitude for all that God has given me. It's a hard issue. And it really comes down to the question is, do we trust God? Do we trust what he says? Do we trust where he leads us? Do we trust that by his spirit he'll empower us to do what he asks us to do? And he asks us in the sermon never to get well adjusted to life here. And he calls us to live radically different. A kingdom of God set of values is very different than the set of values that our culture puts forward. He's been telling us that everything is a gift from God and we're to use it responsibly to bring him glory. Now, having said that as a backdrop, I'm going to look at our passage this week, Matthew 7, verses 21, 22, and 23. It's a tough passage. And I will tell you right now that every time I read this passage, it does trouble my spirit. Not because of you, but because of me. I look at this and I say, what is he trying to say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That means to preach. That means to speak, to share Jesus. Cast out demons in your name. Do many mighty works in your name. And here's the phrase that always just kind of makes me swallow hard. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not, I knew you once and somehow we lost touch. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, what do you hear when you reflect on those words? What do you say and how would you say is the heart of Jesus? Do you read that passage kind of like, well, it's an angry, harsh judgmental Jesus saying, listen, if you don't do it my way, if you don't do it exactly the way I want you to, man, then you are off and you're going to hell. Do you read it kind of like an arrogant Jesus? It's my way or the highway. Now I want you to remind you that many times in this sermon, we've had a parent motif. And he said things like this, what parent would give bad gifts to their child. Now, again, we know in our culture there are bad parents, but he's talking about parents in the ideal sense. I know some of you here this morning, you didn't have much of parents. But what he's talking about is if you had really good parents, what would they want for you? And think about parents and a child and how parents long to know the heart of their child. And think about what happens when a child shuts them out. When a child says, I don't want to know you. I'm going to live life on my terms. I think if you think that way, this will bring you to the heart of what Jesus is trying to, get, to communicate. I mean, he longs to know us. And for that to happen, we must know him. 
But our problem is that we positioned ourselves away from him. And like the prodigal, the story of the prodigal son that took his father's inheritance, went and squandered it out there, ended up in a lot of trouble, and said, you know what, I need to go back and I'll give myself as a slave because I need a place to live, I need a place to eat. But his father, when he sees him from a distance, goes running out and wraps his arms around him. Kind of like what we did this morning. But like the prodigal, we need to go home. So here's a person that claims certain words. Look at what we did. Look at what we said. And Jesus said, sorry. You knew about me, but you didn't know me. You weren't positioned that I could literally wrap my arms around you. Now, reflecting for a moment on our culture about words, I want to make two observations. I could make more, but, and these two of them will sound contradictory, but I think it really illustrates where we're at today. First, have you noticed today there's a carelessness with words? I mean, the amount of vulgarity and accusations, how we talk with and about and to each other. I mean, I just sit back and say, do people really hear what they're saying? But they don't. Just because we live in what they call an image-based culture and we're careless with words. Now the second observation almost sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. We have this obsession with creating context with words. I call it micromanaging words. Have you noticed how people, when they hear you talk, they pull out phrases? And they say, oh, oh, you used that word. And rather than sitting down and trying to understand what you meant, they say, because you used that word, well, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're a homophobe, you're a misogynist. Now, again, I realize they're polar opposites, but listen to how our culture talks and speaks. On one end, we're just so careless. On the other end, we just are trying to micromanage everybody and we pull things out of context and we make them say things they never intended. Now here's what Jesus is telling us about words. He said words matter. But they must accompany obedience. You know, last week we looked at fruit. By their fruit, you will know whether they're false or true. And again, it's not about perfection. It's not about arriving at a certain level. It's about a journey. And if we're honest, in our religious tradition, in our Baptist tradition, if we're honest, our creedal confessions, that's a fancy word for what we say about Jesus. We use the word doctrine. Our creedal confessions are very important. But the reality is, in so emphasizing those, that often we reduce faith and salvation to a set of words. And we say, well, if somebody says this word, and if someone prays this prayer, then they're in. And that's not what Scripture says. It's very easy to deceive ourselves. Now, again, I want to stress words are important. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth, of course, confession means saying the same thing as God says. There has to be truth in that confession. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and saved. So, in other words, what goes on in our heart comes out in our words. 
First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying there is that this whole salvation process, this journey with Jesus, is initiated and engaged by the Holy Spirit. You cannot say Jesus is Lord and mean it without his help. So in this text, Jesus points this out. Here were some people that had the right words. They gave Jesus the right title, Lord. It was a fervent expression. It was Lord, Lord. There was some passion there. It was public. Look at everything we have done. Look at the spectacular expressions. We cast out demons. We did many mighty works. But he says, you never In fact, he says, I never knew you, which means they never knew him. So what are the possible explanations of who he's talking about? Well, let me offer three. The first is that their claims are false. I mean, they made it up. They might have been in crowds. They might have been in situations. And when they see Jesus and truth is revealed, they sit there and say, by the way, you know, remember we were at a church service and yeah, we, we raised our hands and, and we praised you in a song or we were with this group of people and we saw God work in miraculous ways. But they just kind of made it up and it wouldn't be the first time somebody falsified their activity. Secondly, what they did could have been accomplished through Satan's power. Now, I know that's hard for us to understand, but when you realize he's described as an angel of light, that means he looks good, he sounds good, but his heart is not in the right place. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And then the lawless one will be revealed, talking about Satan, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, talking about what's going to happen way down the road. I shouldn't say way down the road. It could be soon. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. And know what it says here. With all power and false signs and wonders. Those three words, power, signs, and wonders, refer at some other text to Jesus. The exact description of Jesus. So here is this Antichrist, who's doing some pretty impressive things by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. A third option is they were allowed to do these things in God's power. Have you ever noticed that God works in spite of us? In spite of our failings, in spite of us getting it wrong? God just kind of shows up sometimes when he least suspects. A favorite story I read a long time ago, and then they made a movie that was supposed to be based upon this, even though they didn't say that. The movie was called Leap of Faith. I don't know how many saw it. It was made back in the early 1990s, where Steve Martin portrayed a fraudulent faith healer, Jonas Nightingale, in Kansas during the droughts back in the early to mid 19. I mean, 20th century, 1900s. This town had 27% unemployment, and so in walks the con artist. And throughout the movie, they show the tricks of the trade. But one scene, a boy comes up in crutches. 
And of course, Steve ignores him because he's not part of the con. He really can't heal. He doesn't believe in God. It's not part of the whole sham that he's running. But this boy comes up and he's insisting. And even though he's ignored, he finally goes over and touches the feet of Jesus. There's, there's this crucifix up front. And when he touches the feet of Jesus, he drops his crutches. And he begins to walk. And the crowd goes ballistic. Jonas at first is angry. He thought he's being upstaged by another con artist better than himself. But in the aftermath, he's confronted with the reality, the miracle of this boy, his faith and the power of God. And he's so unnerved, he's faced with such a conflict that he quits. He decides to leave town, leave everything there. Doesn't take him for everything he took him for. And he's seen hitching a ride in the dead of night. But as a truck pulls away, he hears the people gathered to pray and to sing. And then it begins to rain. And the movie ends with Jonas hanging out the window, thanking Jesus for the rain. Even though our hearts aren't right, and even though we may be running a con, God shows up, doesn't he? Think of Saul. He was part of the religious elites. He was part of the one that would have faced Jesus on that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? I mean, he lined himself up as somebody who worshiped and honored and sought God. And yet he went about killing followers of Jesus because he refused to believe the truth about who Christ was. He would have been one of those people in Matthew 7. And so he talks about his words. He talks about his accomplishments. He talks about his way of doing religious duties in the name of God. And he's on his way to do God's work. And who shows up? Jesus. It wasn't a preacher. But it was Jesus. And he says, Paul. Actually, he says, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Later he becomes Paul because Saul said, you know what? I'm at a crossroad and I got to choose. Got to choose the way of Jesus or choose the way of God. I have a friend who was miraculously saved. I say that because he went to search beyond his religious roots And so he started reading scripture and he read for six months. And at the end of that six months, he was confronted with Jesus. And there was an absolute radical change in his heart. Now, his journey out from that, yes, there are things every year he keeps changing and working and moving. But it's one of those cases where it wasn't anybody outside. It was the word of God, what he sought, and the Holy Spirit moved him. So what Jesus is referring to here in this passage is what we call self-deception. Last week I talked about closed-loop thinking, that we're so focused on what we believe that all the evidence that what we believe is filtered through our biases. And this is nothing new. M. Scott Peck wrote a book. He's a psychologist back in the 80s. And the title was called The People of the Lie. People are so convinced of their own lies that that becomes truth. So we have to ask ourselves the question then, 
if this is true, that we can deceive ourselves to a point that we don't understand the truth about Jesus, what are some of the roots of that self-deception? Well, the first is what I call the false doctrine of assurance of salvation. And again, I go back to this thought that somehow if we get people to pray a prayer, to say some words, it's fire insurance. Nothing changes. There's no transformation of the heart. But somehow they believe through falsified thinking about Jesus that they're in. When I was first in ministry, there was a controversy brewing among theologians and preachers. One major one, and I hope I represent them well. Forgive me if I don't. One was Zane Hodges, who wrote a book called Absolutely Free. And he wrote that in contrast to John MacArthur, who wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. The one said, nothing needs to be changed. You declare the name of Jesus, you are saved, you're in. Nothing has to change. MacArthur says, no, 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 no. If you accept Jesus, there is this crisis, and there will be a transformation. There will be fruits. And of course, then MacArthur was accused of salvation by works. St. Hodges was accused of not even being anywhere near what salvation meant. But note this this morning. Jesus is the only one who gets to say, you're mine. And I don't know you. And so in this whole discussion, we have to be careful. Now, biblically, here's what I know. In 1 John, this is how we know that we are a follower of Jesus. And again, we're not talking about perfection. In a sense that we have it all together. Been doing this for a long time. And I'm still working on issues of my faith. And words do matter. But so does our lives. James chapter 2 verse 19, when James is confronting this, says this. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. So a byproduct of us saying, Lord, Lord, and bringing into our life is that there is some fruit. Second root of self-deception is a failure to do self-examination. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves. And again, that's just not casual thinking. That's a really deep process, a deep system that we start saying, okay, we're going to do this and this and this. We're going to really test it to make sure, to see whether or not you're the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? And then he has this phrase, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. This is why the community is so important. We can't self-examine by ourselves. But we have to be careful who we bring into that examination. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. I mean, in our humanity, we can gather people who think like us, act like us, who believe like us, and we think we've examined ourselves. No, you need to find people who challenge you. But see, in our humanity, we excuse and we, we minimize, we redefine. We say, oh, yeah, that used to be a sin, but it's no longer a sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I remember one time, and there are people today, believe it or not, religious people, good religious people, 
who claim they cannot sin anymore. I ran across the guy when I was in Bible college. I was teaching a college group at YFC, and I very sarcastically, he did not pick it up, asked if anyone here doesn't sin anymore, and this person raised their hand, and they really believed it. And I'm like, man, I just never heard of this. And I went on later to discover what he was talking about is what they call the doctrine of the second work of grace. I don't know how many have heard that, but it's where you're saved here. Then over here, you get the Holy Spirit and you're really, really saved. And they believe they cannot sin anymore. So that's a major distortion of the doctrine of Jesus. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... Again, saying the same thing God says, not saying the same thing as somebody else says. See, part of self-examination is bringing God into the picture, his word, prayer, all those kinds of things. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I don't think anybody here wants to accuse Jesus of being a liar. (laughs) Amen? Now, here's what frightens me, though. I think the church today no longer has a very good doctrine of sin. Why? Because it's offensive. It offends us to look at our own hearts. And I see many churches today are willing to redefine sin. And they're deceiving people with empty words according to scripture. And they're more concerned with being liked than being Christ. Now, again, please hear me on this. We don't go around, we're not bombastic, we're not harsh. We don't sit there and tell people, well, if you do this, you're going to hell. I remember growing up, some preachers would stand up and with force and with vehemence, they would condemn the sin of alcohol. Now, they got the issue wrong because alcohol wasn't the issue, it's the heart. You know, alcohol is a symptom of a deeper problem, just like any other sin. It's a symptom of a deeper problem. But they go preaching away. And in one case, I remember, they're on stage and they're preaching about how you shouldn't drink and they had to be at least 100 pounds overweight. And I got to tell you, many Christians who judge people for a particular sin of like drink or drugs, they'll pull up to Shady Maple and eat to incredible excess. Amen? Confession time. Altar ought to be packed. I, I kind of nicknamed Shady Maple the sin bin. It's kind of hard to go there and not indulge, especially the desserts. The Bible speaks to everything in moderation. And so what Paul's telling us and what Jesus tells us is that we need a system in place for examination and accountability. That's what it says. There are many Christians who do not do that. With their faith. They do it with their finances. We call it budgeting. They do it with their calendars. But they don't do it with their faith. A third root of self-deception is what I call the incredible concentration of religious activity. They attend church every time it's open. They sing the songs. They read their Bibles. All good things. But everything they do, I hear phrases like this. Well, you know, I hope I'm good enough to get in someday. And what they fail to realize, and it breaks my heart, is that the only thing that gets us in is Jesus. 
The only thing that gets us in is when we stand before him, he turns to his father, says, I got this one. They're one of mine. And he turns to us and say, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. As I studied this passage this past week, I realized it's a tough sermon. It almost sounds like it's work salvation. But that's not what it's saying. What it is saying is if you've accepted Christ, you need to put a system in place where you're producing fruit. And that is a patient struggle that we welcome you to embrace in community. What it's saying is also if you not accepted Christ, you should. Why? Because the end is not good. The end here because you're going to live a life of deception. You're going to live a life of following false teachers. You're going to live, live a life down the wide road of destruction. You're going to live a life that is not going to be fun. And you should accept Christ. Why? Because he is the narrow way. He is the truth. He is the life. And as Jesus says, you shall know the truth. That's him. And that truth will set you free. See, the reason you should accept Christ is because before Christ, you were enslaved. You may not saw it. You may not believed it. The world may have said, no, you're really living free. You're living who you are. But inside your heart, you know there's so much emptiness and loneliness. And you're enslaved. It doesn't matter what you're enslaved to. It just matters whether you're enslaved. Satan doesn't care what sin. Kenny got it. I'm amazed at how he always claps at appropriate spots. Some of you can learn. Need to sit around Kenny. Feel the mojo. And if you haven't accepted Christ, the only way to break your slavery is to embrace him. So said so many times, the only thing keeping you from Jesus is yourself. Set of false beliefs, not good enough. Only if everybody knew. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter what everybody here knows. God already knows. And he sent his son to die. And he is waiting for you to ask. But this is a tough sermon. It's a tough passage. But it should drive us to healthy self-examination, to do it in community, a diverse community, to do it in accountability relationships with prayer, with scripture. But here's what Jesus says. Talk without truth. No, it doesn't work. Profession without reality doesn't work. In Luke 6, kind of a parallel passage here, he says this in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? See, Jesus says, I will confess. I will tell you the truth. I will confess that I never knew you. And that breaks his heart. I can imagine that when he wrote those words, there was tears flowing down his face saying, I don't want to say that. So I want you to think about where you're at this morning because I'm going to ask that at the end. But I want to close with a passage of scripture. Kind of wraps everything up here. As I do this, I'm going to invite the worship team up because we're going to sing. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, here's what Paul writes to a young believer. Remind them of things. Remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Which does no good. But only ruins the hearers. You ever been in those settings where people are just arguing words and definitions and context? They're careless. And everybody walks away frustrated. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irrelevant babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermenius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Amen. So, if you're here this morning and you need to accept Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. In our our tradition, what we do is this. We just have you stand. And then someone comes alongside of you, takes you to another room, not because we want to do it privately and secretly. It's so they can sit down and help you understand what that is. So if you sense the Holy Spirit prompting you that you need to make this step, I'm just going to have you stand right now. And uh, this is a safe place to do this, by the way. I know inside you're like, hey, what are people going to think? What are people going to say? If anybody here doesn't celebrate it, I'll deal with them, okay? (laughs) But this is a place that, man, we will celebrate that kind of decision. So if you're here this morning, just want you to stand up if you want to make this decision to follow Christ. Anyone? And again, if I don't see you right away, it's because the lights are in my eye. So you might have to wave and jump up and down a little bit, which is okay. Is there anyone? You know what? If I step back here, I can see. Oh, that's good. Anyone want to say, I want to follow Jesus this morning for the first time? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we are truly blessed. And we want to thank you that we don't have to fear this passage, that we can know you, and we can have the assurance that we know you. I pray for any of those this morning that that Satan is tempting to trick and deceive, and they walk away afraid that they're not yours, and they are. Just have the Holy Spirit kind of kick that nonsense out of them. I also pray for those that think their religious activity is going to save them. If they need to follow you, may they make that choice this morning. And for others, Lord, that, that may think that they're just way beyond any kind of help. Again, may the Holy Spirit just help them be reassured that they are a precious child of God. And God looks with all the kind of love and hope and power that goes way beyond anything they could ever imagine. We worship you this morning, Lord. We celebrate what you are doing on this journey. We thank you for your words. We thank you for how we get the privilege to live out these kingdom values. Lead us as a church, Lord. Help us become more like you. And may people see Jesus in us.
In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen.